Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In this episode, we'll be looking at the Philip K. Dick short story, The Indefatigable Frog. Uh, the Indefatigable Frog was first published in Fantasy Story Magazine in July 1953. Um, you can currently find it in the Paycheck volume, the first volume of the collected stories of Philip K. Dick. Um, so let's just go into it. There's not that much to say about this story, but I, I said I'd go through these stories one at a time, and that means going through some um, stories of, I guess, minor interest to, to readers of Philip Dick, but uh, maybe there's a few things here we can talk about. Um, in the story, we have a, a philosophy prof professor, Professor Hardy, and he's introducing to his students Zeno, Zeno and his paradox. And he Actually, he's not a philosophy professor, is he? He's a physics professor professor but he's still talking about Zeno I guess I guess you'll be introduced to Zeno in, in a couple of places either a math class or a physics class or perhaps a philosophy class um, now Zeno's paradox if you don't know is essentially the idea that motion is impossible because to get anywhere you have to get halfway there and to get from the halfway point to the ending you have to go another half on and on so essentially Zeno is trying to talk about mo mo motion and mobility and um, and he kind of argues it's impossible. It, it kind of becomes a playful little game for um, in math classes for talking about like summing infinite series and things like that. And I mean that that's essentially the solution to the Zeno paradox. Um, but this professor is trying to defend it. Now Professor Grote is he's the philosopher. He comes in and he publicly challenges Hardy's insistence that the Zeno's, parad Zeno's paradox works. Um, and they use the example of a frog. You know, they're not using Achilles and the turtle, which is usually the example we get, or maybe a bow, an arrow. And here it's a frog. You know, a frog kind of jump into the destination. Uh, so maybe Dick here is, you know, kind of tapping into a little bit of Twain there. Because Twain has that jumping frog story, right? So, um... Hardy confesses that no one's ever really performed an experiment that could test the truth of Zeno's claims. So Hardy and Grote agree to build a machine that will indeed perform this experiment using a frog as the, as the case study. So they build a frog chamber. They get support from the university to build it. Uh, the way it works is it replicates Zeno's paradox by having kind of a, a heated tube at one end which forces the frog to jump consistently farther along and with each jump the frog is reduced in size by one half from the frog's perspective the tube will be getting longer and longer essentially infinite hardy asserts that the experiment will prove that the frog can never get to the end of the tube because it'll keep getting smaller and smaller um, and it could never actually get to the end hardy asserts that the experiment will prove that the frog well, can never get to the end but Grote suspicious of the machine and and he thinks basically that the experiment's being corrupted by the nature of the machine um, he urges Hardy to ex investigate it in more detail. Grote is eventually caught in the same experiment with the frog. So it's basically Grote tricks him into getting into the machine. And when he's in there, he turns it on. And with relish, Hardy begins to urge his dear frog to hop to his destination. Put the Zeno's paradox under a real test, in other words. Grote although within the tube and getting progressively smaller, is certain that Zeno is wrong and that he will reach the end of the tube in exactly nine hours and 30 minutes, although he'll be vastly uh, at a vastly smaller size. So we have a little bit of, um, of Masterson's the, the Incredible Shrinking Man situation going on here. 
Meanwhile, Hardy is self-assured of his victory over his intellectual enemy and brags of, his, of this before his class. And meanwhile, Grote is continuing to shrink, eventually reaching the subatomic size. Now, the original Frog and later Grote disrupt another of Hardy's classes. Unfortunately, the Zeno's paradox cannot be tested using the tube because once the subject reaches subatomic size, it escapes the tube and regains normal size. Another method is decided is needed to test the paradox. So that's essentially all there is in the story. There's really no resolution to Zeno's paradox experimentally in the tale because it breaks down once people reach the subatomic level. You know, kind of break. You know, they're they're expelled from the tube. And 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 this the kind of the experiment goes back to its book goes back to base. Now it's a bit of comic relief, certainly after Dick's uh, masterpiece, The Variable Man, and I urge you to go back and listen to to my episode on The Variable Man, which I think is his first really great work. Um, this story centers on an intellectual duel between a philosopher and a scientist. The scientist. Um, now, this is a bit strange to me. The scientist should be the one who doesn't believe in Zeno's paradox, right? He sh- the scientist should be the one who realizes that you can summon infinite series and that you can reach destinations and understands calculus and all that stuff. But, you know, it's the philosopher who plays with these ideas. But it's, it's, it's twisted around here. Um, but he does think it can be tested experimentally. So that is him being a scientist. It's not just a thought experiment for him. It's something that can be actually tested experimentally. Uh, the philosopher deduces that Zeno is wrong, and the frog um, will reach its destination using only reason. To resolve the debate, the scientist builds a machine that will test Zeno's paradox in this rather clever way. Um, by heating one end and then progressively making the subject smaller, you're basically recreating the conditions of, of the paradox. As with so many academic debates, no matter how elaborate the argument and the experiment, questions remain at the end. So we, we kind of have the, the futility of academic debate almost established here because there's no answer, even with all the money spent on this machine and lives risked eventually even in the, in the machine. And that's a private problem in this story is you have one professor so malicious, you know, actually risking the life of a colleague over such a stupid little debate. Um, it's, it seems a little bit not really justified why the characters are acting this way. Um, but nevertheless, we got a solution eluding both sides and, in a sense, no harm done in the end. But many academic debates are presented as life or death struggles, but seem to have little meaning in the end. And, you know, there's that old cliche that, you know, academic debates are as, seri- or, or as serious and intense and as personal as they are irrelevant. Now, if this is ridiculous, it's not nevertheless real enough if we have it as a reflection of academic infighting and departmental struggles for supremacy and funding and things like that. And, and maybe the story works on that level. Now, Dick, of course, didn't really spend much time in college, so I don't know if he had much insight into this. Um, I, I like to think of this story kind of as a, a metaphor for the current struggles of the humanities to defend their very existence in the university from the assault of the STEM fields. And it's kind of fun to see the philosopher get... Uh, one over the scientist. Um, now, the wonderful part of the story is the end, where we learn that the massive uh, experiment did not answer any questions because the experiment broke down at the subatomic level. Uh, now, instead of the guy going to the you know smaller and smaller and smaller uh, till he dies, you know, it, the story ends with everything ending up back to normal. Um, so maybe the story is defending the humanities in a way. The, the, the experiment, no matter how much funding is put into it, can't answer the question. 
The philosophy professor is much more practical of the two, relying on reason and what can be seen and observed. It was the scientist who got lost in the math and felt the need to build a big device to solve what was really a silly and irrelevant question in, in real life. So we end up with the practical philosopher, although potentially murderous and pretty malevolent at times, competing with the scientist who's getting kind of lost in the details. Um, so that does it for the indefatigable frog. Um, um, I'll, I guess I'll, uh, thanks for listening and I'll, I'll see you next time where we'll have a, hopefully a more interesting story to, to look at. I came to get down, I came to get down, so get out to see